All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Yes, 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 yes. Welcome, one and all, to Adventures in Black Cinema. My name is Desmond Thorne. It is such a joy to be here and to be giving you your passport to Black film through this podcast. If it is your first time here, we come here every week to get into the nitty gritty of a different Black film, get you into the gamut, as they say. Some classics, some hidden gems, sometimes the ratchets as well. They also must be covered like... I'm going to have to do an episode on how to be a player one of these days. Um, it does deserve a conversation. I've had some requests for Soul Plane, which I've actually never seen before. So I'd like to give it a chance myself. So we go through everything here on this show. And I also give you a little bit of my own personal experiences with these films. Speaking of personal experiences... It's uh, getting a little weird to be kind of getting busy, like, during this pandemic. Uh, I feel strangely used by now, and it's weird because, like, I was having a wonderful time of not being overwhelmed with lots of other things. But, you know, the things creep in, and we are thankful for the things at the end of the day. It's all about us learning how to manage to-do lists, just getting up a little earlier, just, you know, focusing on one task at a time. It's been really helpful for me, and I hope it's also really helpful for you. I also just want to say, uh, before we get into the episode official, uh, that... We have lots of international listeners, which is very exciting to me. Uh, we have a lot of listeners in the UK, listeners in South Korea, listeners in like Italy and Croatia and shit. It's really cool. Um, I'm really excited to see how that continues to expand and grow and like see what y'all think from an international perspective on some of these films. And if there are any Black films in your countries, well, I would say that mostly, I guess, goes for... Uh, it goes for many countries. I'm not going to say anything about that. It goes for many countries. Let me know, and I will definitely dig into those and cover those. We are definitely going to cover some more Black films that take place in the continent of Africa, uh, namely, off the top of my head, the countries being Uganda and uh, Senegal. Uh, Definitely have some black French films to look into. So if you got some suggestions, let me know. Hit me up on Adventures in Black Cinema on Instagram is there for y'all. So y'all.
very excited for today's adventure. And today's adventure is in Grandma's and Good Intentions. And we are going to get into the nitty gritty of the film Down in the Delta. But first, a decease and desist. White folks don't bullshit, he's dead, fuck him, let's move on. We gotta have four days with this dead motherfucker, four days! So, for those of you who are new to the show, and as a reminder for those who aren't, it is more of a fresh and new segment on the show, Decease and Desist is a segment in which I take something that's happening in the Black media and do as... We say in New York, dead it. Kill it with a skillet. I don't like it. I don't want to see it. So last time we talked about a film called Cracker that is coming out. I believe now I've learned it's made for TV. I don't fucking know what's happening with this movie. Um, Directed by a white man about this uh, reversing history, you know, doing a little switcheroo, uh, a Quentin Tarantino, if you will. Um, where the slaves are white people and the masters are black people. We talked about that and my issues with that. Uh, This week, I'm going to talk about our good friend Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry, I will say, has done a lot for our community in terms of, you know, his films and his plays and his television shows do touch some people in our community very deeply in a fun and also emotional way. I am not one of those people per se. I don't think all of his movies are trash. I like some of them, namely off the top of my head, like Diary of a Mad Black Woman is cool. Um... Daddy's Little Girls is cool. Love Idris Elba. Um, what else? I mean, I've, I'm interested to see his adaptation of For Color Girls, but would have loved to see a woman do that. Great cast, but still, goddammit, that would have been oof, a really good opportunity for someone else. Anyway... He's done some good for our community. You know, that studio he has going in Georgia, dope. You know, um, the fact that he does provide so many jobs in this industry for black people in front of the camera, behind the camera, is dope. But that all kind of goes out the door a bit when you start talking about how we don't need to defund the police. There needs to actually be more police. This is Tyler Perry's opinion. And it just brings to light that there's a few things that he doesn't quite understand. One being that uh, defunding the police and abolishing the police are two different things. Um, When we say defund the police, we want to take out these large amounts of public funds that are coming from us going toward police departments and huge, huge, extraneous, unnecessary amounts. It makes no sense how much money these departments are getting and for what? For what? 
Come on, like, what they're doing now, more than anything, is fucking killing black people. So, there's so much KKK connection to the police as well, and they're getting all that money? Like, Tyler Perry, come on. So we all know the statistic that in New York, when the NYPD went on strike, crime went down. And that's just a fact. That is a statistic. That is numeros there. So though we are not saying abolish, defund, take some of those funds and put them in better places like eh, the school systems, so many other places this money could be going and we're giving them our money so that they can kill us. Hmm. Okay, Tyler Perry. Another thing that he does in this statement is he mentions a kind of... He mentions that he is as mad at the police for killing Black people as he would be for a Black person shooting a white cop. So the problem with that is, is that those two things are just not the same. First of all, the rate at which Black people are getting killed by cops is way larger and way more frequent than black people killing white cops. Also, you better believe that when that black person shot that cop, that he was either shot by other cops or he was put into prison with a very large sentence or possibly like, you know, killed on death row, depending on what state this person was in. And that simply is not happening with the cops that kill black people in this country. The cops who killed Breonna Taylor in her home have still not been arrested. Like, come on, come on. Like, there it is right there. Simply put. It's not the same thing. Is it a good thing for a black person to kill a cop? No. You know, of course not. But to say that they are one and the same is incorrect. Last point about this is that I have been reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. It is fucking wonderful. If you have not read it, do so. It is changing my life. I've seen the movie, of course, and I'd love to talk about it on the show one day. Uh, the movie directed by Spike Lee. Um, but reading it is such a completely different feeling. Like, really reading his words with the help of Alex Haley, who is also an amazing author, author of Roots. Read Roots. It's good. Um, really reading everything in his words is so amazing. And I have just gotten to the part actually where he does talk about these black figureheads who are puppeted by, uh, who are puppets of white people. That white people are really pulling the strings behind uh, what these people do and say. And not even in a literal fashion, I believe sometimes it is in a literal fashion, but in just that like, you feel the need to say this shit and like suck up to white people. Like it's ridiculous. And Terry Crews too, like, come on y'all. It is just, it is just very disappointing to see 
people have these points of views and they feel the need to express them so loudly and brazenly and kind of just like, in a way, say you don't care about a lot of things. It sucks. So I'm not decease and desisting. Ah. All of Tyler Perry and what he does. He is a good actor, too, I must say. He is very good in the film Vice that I hate, but he's the highlight of that movie. And he's good in Gone Girl. Um, He does good things for the community, but I hated that and wanted him in that moment to shut the fuck up. You are here. Alrighty, it is time to get into the nitty gritty of Down in the Delta. Down in the Delta is a film from 1998 directed by the one and the only Maya Angelou. And this was indeed the one and the only feature film that she directed. And it really does have a nice sense of uh, poetry to the way that it was shot and kind of handled with care by Miss Angelou. So big ups on this being your directorial debut. Uh, We miss you. We miss you, Miss Thang. Um... Summary of the movie, if you have not seen it, this film is about a troubled woman named Loretta, played by the amazing, the amazing Alfre Woodard. Uh, And Loretta is dealing with alcoholism, among a few other things. And uh, Loretta is sent by her mother, played by the amazing Mary Alice, love Mary Alice, um, from Chicago, down in the Delta, for Loretta to stay with her uncle Earl, played by Al Freeman Jr., and his family, in order to get Loretta on the good foot. And there's a family heirloom in the balance. A weird subplot that we'll talk about. Weird, but has good intentions. So though Loretta is reluctant to go and spend time with her family in the slow south, in a dry county nonetheless, she ends up finding herself in a deeper connection to her family and her family history. Don't just warm your heart. This film also stars Loretta Devine, who is excellent per usual. Oh, so good in this movie. I love Loretta Devine. Um, Wesley Snipes is in this movie. So that's two people who were in Waiting to Exhale. And Wesley Snipes has really proven to be a master of disguise. Am I not turtly enough for the turtle club? Uh, chameleon, if you will. Uh, in this film, he's bald and wears these like round glasses. They tried to make him not look fine, but he still ended up looking fine. And I say this kind of master of disguise thing because, you know, having recently watched and rewatched Waiting to Exhale and also over the holidays having watched Dolomite Is My Name, which he's very good in, he just looks so different in all these roles and all these films. And also, like, New Jack City, I'm thinking, too. Like, man. And Blade? Oof. Wesley Snipes. Snaps and claps. Snaps and claps. And we also, in this film, have the legendary Miss Esther Roll in her final performance. 
Um, great actor, great legend. Uh, yeah, sad. It's always sad to watch people in their last role, especially when your character has Alzheimer's and is pretty much like also kind of dying in many ways in the movie. It's pretty sad. Uh, some fun facts about this movie. One fun fact being that there's not a lot of information about the making of this film online. Um, I really wanted to find out more about the screenwriter, Myron Gobble, and kind of where this person got their inspiration for this story and kind of, you know, just more about this person's background as a writer. Can't find shit. (laughs) All you can find is his work on, or their work, I'm not sure, of this person's gender, um, their work on uh, Down in the Delta. That's pretty much all I can find about Myron. Um, This was a Showtime co-production, and I don't know if that means that Showtime had intended it to be a television film for them. Uh, HBO had been doing that for a while. Maybe they wanted to get into the game, and then they were like, no, but we have this amazing fucking cast, and Maya Angelou directed this, so like, let's put it out in theaters, and let's get it some money. And it did make a good amount of money for an independent film. Um, the scenes in Chicago in this film were shot in Toronto, which is a common thing to do when you're shooting in these big cities, like trying to give off the vibe of Chicago or LA or New York. You want to shoot in a Canadian city like Toronto, uh, Vancouver. Um, you want to do that to give it the same feel of a city. Also, maybe like build some things out and not have to worry so much about the dense population and the kind of things that you have to go through in order to shoot in one of these major cities. It can be very expensive too. Um, so that's like a common thing that happens. Uh, another fun fact that I knew. Alfre Woodard is a Scorpio. Her birthday is November 8th, a day after mine. She is a Scorp sister. But I also didn't know that Esther Roll has the same birthday as Alfre and is also a Scorp sis. So love to see that. And when you watch Alfre Woodard in movies, you're just like, oh, she's absolutely a Scorpio. Like this role may actually be one of the most Scorpio roles she's ever played to date. So it's worth noting her astrology. Um, (laughs) So my first experience with this movie was definitely seeing it on VHS. It was in my mom's collection. She really likes this movie a lot, and I remember being reluctant to watch it when I was younger because this movie has such a lesson vibe to it. You know those lesson movies where you know your parent or your grandparent or your auntie is sitting you down to watch this movie because she loves it, And also feels like you'll learn some sort of lesson about, um, you know, how to be a human being in this world and behave and about family and, and, you know, important shit like that. So uh, it definitely has that feel to it from the outside, even. Like, you see there's two posters from this movie that are very different and very strange as well. There is one in which Alfre Woodard, uh, you know, very big head of Alfre Woodard, kind of like looking up at the sun um, with a haircut that she never has in this film at all. It's a short, short cut. She never has that in this movie. 
Um, and there's like a tree on the bottom and it's a very like red background. It kind of looks like the poster for The Lion King. It's very weird. So it's kind of unclear like what this movie is about and what they're trying to do with that. And the other poster is a poster of most of the cast, very poorly photoshopped together. Um, And Alfre Woodard is standing in the middle with another hairstyle that I believe she never has in this movie. (laughs) Um, And yeah, the cast is photoshopped around her. And that one gave me more of like the lesson vibe. I'm just like, oh, everyone's like smiling, looking very knowing and wise. This is going to be one of them lesson films, isn't it? We gonna learn a lesson. Um, And that's kind of where we get into the grandma aspect of this movie. So my friend Shay, who was my lovely, lovely first guest on the show in the third episode where we talked about Fast Color, um, she put a review of this movie on an app called Letterboxd, where you basically can keep track of movies and review movies. And her review of this movie was, quote, this grandma ass movie, end quote. And I thought that that was fucking hilarious because it is true in so many ways. Um, Like I said, total lesson vibes here. Definitely a little bit of lifetime vibes in a way too, which makes me wonder if it was intended for television at first, um, just because of some of like the lighting and stuff. Some of it's a little softer and a bit brighter than a lot of movies tend to be. Um, and does, that is more of a trope of a television movie. And that's not any knock at Maya Angelou at all. Maya Angelou does really wonderful work here as a director. Um, these performances of this movie are very good. Um, and there is a sense of warmth that is really nice. Uh, the slave flashbacks are weird. And we'll get into those definitely at some point um, in the subplot of this movie. Um, But the overall kind of lesson in this movie, and I think why it has that grandma vibe, is that, you know, all you got to do when you have problems is move on down to the South and, like, steep yourself in all of the principles of Kwanzaa And that will get you right. Like kind of no matter what you're dealing with, no matter how hard your life is, just do that in the South specifically. Go to church, you know, all of this shit that are very much, you know, traditional black values. I'm not knocking them at all, but that's not all you have to do. Like it's kind of crazy that in this movie, they skip over some things in terms of Loretta's addiction. So when you're introduced to Loretta, she's obviously an alcoholic. She's got drug issues. Um, Her mother does find her in a crack den, essentially, at some point, and she traded her son's Walkman for crack, which was really, really sad to see. That really got me in the heart as a 90s kid, for sure. Um, But when she goes down to the Delta... 
You don't see her really dealing with any kind of signs of withdrawal from anything. And when you're an addict, you do, because it's a biological thing, there is some sort of sense of withdrawal for sure. And it comes up in some form or fashion. And y'all could have given Alfre Woodard a withdrawal scene. You know Alfre Woodard can do that. You know Alfre Woodard would fucking kill that. Give her that opportunity and just give us that realness of that, like, yes, all of these things can be good, but there are other things as well. Um, you know, steeping someone in the principles of Kwanzaa will help, but it can't, it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing. So this subplot and the slave flashbacks, um, another kind of grandma thing about this movie that I do think works in some ways and not necessarily in others is this candelabra subplot. So there's this candelabra that is in the family and they call it Nathan. It is a silver candelabra and uh, Loretta's mother, played by Mary Alice, uh, basically gives it to a pawn shop as kind of a... um, kind of like a stakes thing for Loretta. Basically saying that, like, if she can go down in the Delta and get herself right and get the money to get Nathan back from the pawn shop, you know, that is proving something. And, you know, not wasting the money that they've gotten uh, to pawn it, uh, essentially. Kind of weird. Kind of weird, right? Um, So... So things about this subplot are kind of unwrapped as time goes on. It becomes clear the reasons why this heirloom are so important to this family. And by the end of the movie, you finally find out after this like breadcrumb dropping of clues that this candelabra was owned by Loretta's great-great-grandfather, who was a slave and saw his father named Nathan sold into slavery and traded for a silver candelabra that he then, as an adult, stole back from that slave owner and kept in their family for generations and called it Nathan. It's something that has kept the family together in a lot of ways. And, um, well, I guess brings them back together at the end of the movie. Um, and it's definitely important. Um, and I do generally like that idea and that story a lot. I do wonder why they waited to tell Loretta that story until she was like in her 30s. I think that's a story that I would want to share with my family a lot earlier than that, actually, and kind of really connect them to those ancestors that they know about. Like, how rare and special is that to really know about your ancestors who were here during slavery and to know a story about them and then heirloom has been passed down from them. I would let her know that a lot earlier so she could also let her kids know that a lot earlier so they can have some really good context on their family in this country 
and what they went through, as well as just like a really great sense of identity of who you are, like really knowing some part of your family from that time. A lot of us don't have access to that, and that is a really special thing. Um, So yeah, that's kind of another grandma aspect of this movie, that there's like a kind of um, a good-intentioned thing here that's kind of not done in the best way possible. Um, And another grandma thing about this movie is that it does remind me in a couple of ways um, of my grandmother's, particularly in things that happened to Esther Roll in her final role, role and role, um, in this film. She plays Uncle Earl's wife, and she, like I said, has Alzheimer's. And there's a scene where Loretta's son, who's about 13 years old, um, he leaves the door open from the kitchen because he's trying to uh, be outside and take photos of nature and of animals that he doesn't get to see in Chicago. Um, And so she walks out the door and she falls. And that definitely reminds me of uh, my grandmother uh, on my mom's side. We called her Grammy. She was the fucking best, like just one of the best people on earth and I don't just say that because she's my grandmother she was honestly a really really dope person and very inspirational to everyone in the family uh so she fell and um it also happened with another family member and something that I do think this film gets very right in a way is the kind of reaction that he feels of feeling so bad and terrible about kind of um, being part of the reason why this happened and everyone being really great about not making sure that he doesn't feel that blame. Um, And Esther Roll does not end up dying in this movie after that fall. It is a big scare for everybody at first, but she pulls through. Um, my grandmother did actually, you know, she fell and that was not the, you know, the cause of death. There were lots of other things going on, but that did, her going to the hospital that time was the last time or the second to last time. I think she might have gone home in between, um, but I can't remember. Uh, yeah. So that reminded me of my Grammy and the fact that Esther Roll in this film has Alzheimer's made me think of my grandmother on my father's side and we called her grandma. Uh, She was Caribbean, also really dope. Wish I had gotten to know her a little bit more um, before she died. She died before Grammy did actually. She died when I was in high school and uh, she did not have Alzheimer's but she had dementia. And I do wish that the depiction of dementia in this film was a bit more nuanced. Uh, What happens to Esther Roll's character is that she is basically uh, reverts back to childhood in a lot of ways. She uh, calls Loretta Divine mommy um, because she thinks that it's her dead mother. And... um, There is a storm that happens and Uncle Earl has to basically calm her down by like, um, you know, kind of buying into her reality uh, full throttle. And um, 
I feel like there are... This is a depiction of Alzheimer's, and this definitely does happen to people. But seeing a more nuanced depiction of it in a black film especially would, would just be really amazing. Um, seeing my grandma with dementia, which is different from Alzheimer's, um, kind of like the emptiness that happens in your brain sometimes. Uh, you know, definitely forgetting things, but st- like having control of your your self and your mind, like knowing full well who people are and things like that, you know, forgetting things in distant memory and sometimes in very, very short term. But for the most part, pretty much being there in terms of knowing who people were and day-to-day things. However, not having control of certain things, almost like a child would, like kind of losing control of bodily functions and things like that. Like seeing your mind slip in that way is a very different thing and in some ways a bit scarier might have been a little too scary for this movie. But um, yeah, I would appreciate a much more nuanced um, depiction of these things in the future. And there are some in other movies, but would have liked to have seen it in this one. Um, so the good intentions of this film are the overall message that family is very important and knowing your roots is super important. And that can honestly sometimes in some ways bring you back from a bad place. Um, it's a nice overall message. And though I do find the Candelabra subplot to be confusing, it is very well-intentioned. Um, there are some also well-intentioned scenes that fall flat that are also surrounded by some beautiful scenes. So that's, again, kind of the balance of this movie of being a little bit um, old school, slightly preachy in some ways. Um, But again, not in a bad way, I think. Um, There is a beautiful scene between um, Earl and Loretta, Alfred Woodard's character, where uh, he's kind of getting her to believe in herself and starting to explain more about Nathan and the candelabra. And an amazing, amazing, beautiful scene with Alfred Woodard and Loretta Devine, in which uh, Loretta Devine, who is um, Esther Roll's caretaker uh, at Uncle Earl's house, Loretta Devine and Alfred Woodard are at Loretta Devine's house, and they're chilling, having a beard, kind of getting to know each other in a really nice way. And um, just Loretta Devine encourages Alfred Woodard to just really um, love her daughter, who is also down in the Delta with her, um, who has autism. And it's not that Alfred Woodard doesn't love her daughter. She just doesn't know if she understands their relationship. Um, and Loretta Devine, like, does a beautiful job at assuring her that she does and that she sees her mother and that, you know, everything will be good. And things do get better with their relationship after that. It's really, really, it's a nice scene. And they both, you know, Loretta Devine and an Alfred Woodard matchup, you know, you're just gonna get some beautiful acting. Urban legend, my ass. A scene that falls flat. 
that again is well intentioned is a scene where, you know, Uncle Earl is asking Alfre Woodard's character, is it really necessary to have to buy your son a gun in Chicago in a few years? And she's like, yeah, uh, because, you know, it's really dangerous. He's going to need to protect himself. And so Uncle Earl takes that information and he's like, hmm, what can I do? What lesson can I teach here? So he gets a gun and is teaching Alfre Woodard's son how to use it. He's about 13 years old and like doing some target practice. And then at the end of the lesson, he pulls up the target to reveal... You've been shooting your stuffed animal, your stuffed white tiger, to show him the severity of shooting people. And it's like, why would you let a child ruin something that gives them comfort? Like, OMG, like, what a terrible lesson. And he does see that also because um, Loretta's son um, has been stuffing money in it that he's made taking photos of tourists in Chicago and he brings it with him down to the Delta and he tells his sister that he's doing this so that they can have money that their mom can't touch and uh, that they can have for themselves. Um, And when Loretta finds that out, there's a beautiful scene that takes place after that between her and her son You know, she's giving him good advice about, you know, like, when we get back to Chicago, we're going to set you up a savings account and, you know, put all that money in. And I think this is, you know, just when she's realizing how good he could be at photography and um, just really does not um, invalidate her son's feelings. She validates her son's feelings. And that's a very beautiful thing to see in any film at any time. You know, also in real life, seeing parents validating their children's feelings and then making changes in their behavior afterwards is really beautiful. It's a really nice thing. So again, these good intentions sometimes falling flat, but then sometimes being successful. And that brings me to this program that I was in when I was in um, middle school, I believe, Uh, middle school, yeah, middle school. Uh, It was a program through my church called Rites of Passage. It was a program that pretty much any frequent male churchgoer was supposed to be in. You, it was very expected of you. And if you weren't, you know, the dudes in the church who ran, it would always come up to you, put a firm hand on your shoulder and be like, well, am I going to see you in rights? You coming to rights? And, um, yeah. That was the culture of it. It was a program kind of teaching young men from all different walks, you know, how to be men, black men. There was a element of black history, which I appreciated. Love the black and African history aspect of it. So good intentions. You have good intentions here, you know, trying to get people on the right path. But where they fall flat was the kind of things being church associated that they would say about being gay. It is so not helpful as a young gay person to hear that shit. Um, It's never helpful, but especially not helpful when you're young and you're gay and it's your formative years and you're trying to figure your shit out. So when you keep hearing that shit, it just pushes you further and further into a shell, into a closet, let's say. 
um, and does not help in terms of forming self-love, which I think should have been taught more in that program, as well as um, just, I don't know, in church in general, love yourself. Um, My mom had a Rise of Passage program for young women, which I thought was very successful. It had good intentions and it was very successful. The young women that she had as part of that program were all fucking stellar. Some of them were and are friends of mine, and they are all doing excellent things. They are beacons of their community. And it's so wonderful to know that my mom helped with that. Very inspirational and uh, a, a wonderful thing that she did for a lot of people. So... Her program was very successful, and it was very cool to see how she would develop the program year after year and um, how wh- what kind of curriculum she would have and what kind of guests she would have, and her friends would help out. It was just a really, really beautiful program. And uh, one of the songs that she would use on the graduations, the kind of like ending of the year, I think it was like a, a two-year program that these women were going through, um, she would use this song that is actually in this movie. It is a song called Patchwork Quilt. It is by the wonderful group Sweet Honey in the Rock. If you don't know Sweet Honey in the Rock, look them up. They are a wonderful, wonderful music group. I've seen them many times at New Jersey Performing Arts Center in downtown Newark. Shout out to Newark. Shout out to New Jersey. 1787 was the day when New Jersey became the third state. Um, many times with my mom and my dad. They were both fans of theirs. Um, great group. And this song is a bop. Children and babies and lovers and friends. They all lay before me so Conclusion with this movie, this is an admirable directorial debut from the late, great Maya Angelou, who, you know, I would have loved to see a version of this script that she wrote or another poet wrote or another author wrote with a little bit more meat on its bones and kind of digging into those two things I was saying about like addiction and mental illness, kind of digging into those a bit more. Um, But, you know, this film achieves its objectives for its audience Grandmas. Um, And the acting is very good. Uh, Stellar cast, top to bottom. Uh, The little boy is okay, but you know, child actors, we we forgive and forget, and we love still. Um, This film is available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. Check it, check it, check it, check it out. All my life I had to fight. So... It is time for the You Better Act Award of the Week. 
If you don't know, the You Better Act Award is an award that I give out every single episode of this show to a performance that I feel deserves way more love and fucking praise and fucking attention. So we give it more love and fucking praise and fucking attention on the show. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please... Alfre Woodard in Clemency. Yes, today, surprise, surprise, is the Alfre Woodard show. She's one of my favorite actors, so we'll be talking about her a lot. I actually want to do a program one day at a movie theater of Alfre Woodard films, including some of her excellent television movie work. So this movie, Clemency, is directed by Chinoye Chuku, and it was released last year. I had the absolute pleasure and privilege to see this film at the Sundance Film Festival last year and listen to an amazing Q&A with Chinoye. Um, wonderful person, want to be her friend. I got to tell her that I liked the movie a lot in person. And what an experience this movie is. It is a tough watch. It is about a warden of a death row prison. Uh, where a man seems to possibly be falsely accused uh, of his crime. So he's up for clemency uh, by the state. And this is a breaking point for Alfre Woodard's character. You know, obviously just the very basic thing of her having this job and having to see men get killed so often. And the fact that she gets close to this guy that's up for clemency. Um, This character is played by Aldous Hodge, excellently played by Aldous Hodge, great, great actor. Um, So she starts to get close to him and that really becomes like a mental breaking point for her. And what a performance from Alfre Woodard, y'all. It's like the fact that she wasn't nominated for an Oscar is fucking insane. That's how good she is in this movie. And I mean, I know I've said that before about other performances, and it's true. This one, when I saw it, I said, oh, Alfre Woodard is winning the Oscar this year. That's what I said when I saw this movie. And the fact that she didn't even get nominated at the end of the year was just absolutely ridiculous. Like, I know it's a tough watch, but still, like... Sometimes movies are tough watches and they're fucking worth it. So when you're sent a screener, fucking watch the movie, please. People shouldn't have to pay this money to get you to fucking watch a movie that Alfre Woodard is starring in that won the grand jury prize at Sundance. Chinoye is the first black female director to win the grand jury prize at Sundance. That, I mean, come on. It's so annoying how ignored this movie was last year. Um, So getting a little passionate about it. Um, And when you see this last scene of this movie, I'm not going to give it away, but in the Q&A at Sundance, Chinoye was talking about how when they went in for a take of this last scene, the first take of this last scene, she just reminded Alfre Woodard of a couple of things, a couple of facts from the script and about her character. And they rolled on it. And it's a one shot. No cuts. It is one of the best endings in terms of acting I think I've ever seen. Uh, Goodbye, Timothee Chalamet at the end of Call Me By Your Name. Um, 
this is the one. This is the one. And the fact that she did this in one take, and that was the take that they used in the movie, insane. Chinoye said that in the Q&A, that that first was the first and only take, and that's the one that they used in this film, and it stays with you. I can see it in my head right now. It's an impactful film. Watch it. Check it out on Hulu. Also, oh my gosh, I almost forgot. Wendell Pierce plays her husband. So you know what that means. Yes, 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 yes. What we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is a nigger from the wire. And like I've said, 75% of all black films will feature at least one nigger from the wire. And this film has one. Wendell Pierce giving a really nice performance here as Alfre Woodard's husband, doing some lovely, grounded, wonderful work. Um, so good. Um, and we love to see it. It hasn't happened in a while, but I knew it was going to come back. This wire. This wire theme. It will always come back. Um, also, Danielle Brooks is in this movie from Orange is the New Black, and she's quite wonderful in this as well. Um... This film is available to rent on Hulu, so you have no excuses. Use yours or your cousins. Get into it. So some food for thought for this week's episode. Has a change of location or locale ever changed your life for the better and kind of brought you to a healthier place? Comment on our Instagram, at Adventures in Black Cinema. Hit us up on SFB Society. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you, as always, to our audio engineer, Matt Mozzarella, to our producer, Angie, to our executive producer, Miss Amanda Seals. Next week... We will be getting into the nitty-gritty of Tales from the Hood. This will be a first watch for me, so I'm really, really excited. I've heard so much about this movie, you know, growing up in the 90s, so I'm excited to get on into it. And we have a special guest. We'll be doing Tales from the Hood with James III, who is one of the co-hosts of the amazing podcast, Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood, and also co-star of the Netflix sketch comedy series, Astronomy Club. So get excited about that one and rent it if you haven't seen it so you can follow along with us. Thank y'all so much. I have so much love and gratitude for all of you. And thank you for being part of this show with me every week. Uh, Stay blessed and stay black. Great.